Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney. You know, through all the shakeups and resignations and firings and hirings this administration has gone through recently, somehow Jeff Sessions has managed to hang on. He lies under oath in his confirmation hearings. He stays. Trump calls him out publicly, insults him again and again. He stays. Apparently, Trump isn't willing to fire him directly, which makes you wonder what Sessions knows, and he's not resigning either. And I want to talk about why that is, but first I want to play this seemingly unrelated clip. Sarah. April. Thank you. Um, Since you said my name so politely. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. So Somewhat sarcastic. Me being sarcastic? No, never. Go ahead, April. All right. Did you catch that? Let's listen to how April Ryan said Sarah Huckabee Sanders' name again. Sarah. April. There wasn't any hostility in her voice. She just said Sarah. But see, white people have the tendency to project hostility and aggression on black people. It's one of those things we do without being able to control it. It's wired into our brains from generations of systemic racism. And it can result in something as innocuous as being a jerk to a black person asking you a question, or something as horrific as shooting a 12-year-old boy as soon as you pull up to him in a park. Speaking of which, I want to play more of that exchange. Um, Sarah, when it comes to this joke that the president said um, Friday, you have many organizations, to include police organizations, the NAACP, and the American Citizenship that is upset about this. Could there be an apology from the president? And what does he view as reasonable when he's not joking when it comes to use of force from police? I would have to ask on that specific question. But do you think that the president is remorseful for what he said because of the outcry from Friday? I think the president supports uh, our law enforcement and he supports the protection of the citizens of this country and he wants to empower our law enforcement to be able to do their job. I don't think there's anything beyond that. Zeke. What Sanders was dismissing as a joke was this quote Trump made earlier to a group of police officers. And when you see these towns and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like... Don't hit their head, and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? But see, that isn't funny. In a country where a large group of people are genuinely afraid to call the police because they believe they could end up dead rather than helped, police using violence against crime suspects shouldn't be made into a joke, certainly not by the President of the United States. But Sanders' reaction to April Ryan and the president's joke are, frankly, two sides of the same coin. There's a casual, almost comfortable racism that pervades this administration. And it extends through everything, from incidental exchanges with the press to immigration policy, which I'll be talking about in more detail later in the podcast. And you can't talk about racism in the Trump administration without talking about Jeff Sessions. Which brings us back around to our original topic, why Jeff Sessions wants to stay in this job no matter how much Trump attacks him. Sessions has an agenda he wants passed. We saw it this week. The New York Times reported the Justice Department is planning to go after colleges and universities 
that use affirmative action in their admissions. Not just the Department of Justice, but the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, the very people who are supposed to protect the oppressed. And instead of supporting minorities and getting access to college, the DOJ is going to redirect its resources to helping the most privileged people protect their privilege and status. After this news came out, I saw a lot of stories of people encountering a myth that I honestly didn't realize existed. Apparently, there are a lot of white people in America who believe black people and other racial minorities get automatic free tuition when they go to college. They've been told all their lives minorities are getting a free ride. That just isn't how the world works. It is harder, much harder, for a black person in America to make it to college and pay for it and succeed. That's what affirmative action is all about, leveling that playing field. And if you think that's unfair, well, don't forget. Even if you go to college, graduate, and go on to succeed wildly in your field, even if you get to go to the White House for work every day and ask questions of the president's press secretary, you can still face a casual reminder of how white people see you, just like April Ryan did. There's a lot to get caught up with on the Russia scandal this week, but I want to take a moment to step back and review where we are, because the administration's main line about the entire scandal continues to be that it's nothing more than fake news, a hoax, a witch hunt. Trump said this Thursday night. The Russia story is a total fabrication. They have not wavered from that line, even though the president's son sent an email during the campaign saying he would love it if an attorney he thought worked for the Russian government shared secret information that would damage Hillary Clinton. Remember, that was the smoking gun and the shell casings and literally a signed confession. But they are still asserting there was no improper contact, no collusion, no cover-up, no obstruction. No matter how bizarre a position that becomes, they are claiming total innocence. But things are, are looking worse and worse for them. Do you remember why Trump Jr. released that email chain? It was the third day of stories about the fateful meeting he had, and the New York Times was about to release that email, so he wanted to get it out first. But after the first story about the meeting, he put out a statement denying it was of any consequence, saying it was just a meeting about adoption of Russian children, a statement his own email proved to be a lie. And this week, we learned who wrote that statement. Donald Trump. Senior. The President of the United States personally intervened to help his son issue a false statement about a meeting he had in which he attempted to collude with a foreign adversary to affect an election. But it's just a witch hunt. A hoax. Fake news. Sarah Huckabee Sanders took to the podium to dismiss this story, not as incorrect, but as just a father helping out his boy, just like any father would. Now, I love my dad, but I generally don't lean on him to write statements about my professional conduct. And let's be clear here, Trump Sr. wasn't trying to help or protect his son, who isn't a boy, but a man in his late 30s and a father of five. Trump was protecting himself, just like he always does. And that's the kind of incident that the grand jury Robert Mueller just convened is likely to want to look into. 
On Thursday, news leaked that not only is Mueller impaneling a grand jury, but that it's issuing subpoenas specifically looking into the now infamous Donald Trump Jr. meeting. What does that mean? It means Mueller can now compel people to testify under oath. It means indictments are a real possibility. What it means is that this is a serious criminal investigation, and Donald Trump should be very, very worried. But on the other hand, it's just fake news. A hoax. A witch hunt. Which would explain why Trump continues to show such deference to Russia. There were two great examples of this this week. First, his Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, whom you might remember received the Order of Friendship from Vladimir Putin himself back when he was CEO of Exxon, refuses to spend $80 million allocated by Congress meant to counter propaganda from Russia and other entities hostile to the United States. Now, let's try to sum up exactly what we know the Russians are doing to influence public opinion in the U.S., they have a television news channel, RT, which pushes pro-Russia storylines to a left-leaning audience. They have a website, Sputnik, which pushes them to a right-leaning audience. They have armies of people pushing fake news stories out on social media and websites like Reddit to fool Americans into believing what they want us to believe. And they hacked into Americans' emails and selectively and strategically released them to influence our election. So yes, it makes sense that we would spend money countering their propaganda. But we're just not. This isn't a money-saving measure. Congress has already allocated the money. Tillerson is simply refusing to spend it. It's almost like the administration doesn't want to counter Russian propaganda, like it's helpful to them. That said, there was a little dust-up with Russia this week. Congress passed a bill, a truly bipartisan bill, passing both houses with overwhelming majorities that increased sanctions on Russia. And there was some question whether Trump might veto it, even though there were clearly enough votes to override the veto. In the end, he signed it uh, and added a signing statement that said the bill he had just signed was flawed and unconstitutional. Kind of threw a little tantrum there. But that wasn't enough for Russia. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, he's the guy who took over as president for Putin when Putin was term limited out, tweeted this. The Trump administration has shown its total weakness by handing over executive power to Congress in the most humiliating way. I'm so sorry, I know, my, my accent's terrible, but anyway, that's a direct attack on Trump, and you know how Donald Trump responds to insults. He hits back ten times harder. He doesn't care if you're someone powerful, like a former pageant winner, or a Muslim gold star father, or a reporter with a disability, if you insult Trump, he's coming for you. So what was his response to Medvedev? Would he call him sad, failing, fake news? Let's listen in. Our relationship with Russia is at an all-time and very dangerous low. You can thank Congress, the same people that can't even give us H-care. So he responded to an insult from the Russian prime minister by attacking Congress. Honestly, it's kind of sad. He's doing everything in his power to try to improve our relationship with Russia. Everything in his power. And Congress steps in to step up sanctions. It's almost like they don't trust his motives when it comes to our relationship with Russia. I'd say it has something to do with the scandal plaguing his administration, but we all know that's just a witch hunt. A hoax. Fake news. 
Folks, the 2020 campaign has kicked into high gear. Well, okay, it's still mid-2017, so maybe not high gear. But you wouldn't really know that by watching Trump. That clip about the Russia story being a fabrication from the last segment, that was from a rally held tonight in West Virginia as I was working on the podcast. He's holding fundraisers. And he just launched a weekly video series on his official campaign Facebook page to cut through all that nasty fake news. Because, let's be honest, if you're getting your news about Trump from this podcast, well, folks, I've just been lying through my teeth and, and making everything up. Hell, all the links on my website that are supposed to back up what I'm saying, just go to ads for catheters and reverse mortgages. But... Finally, you have a reliable source of news, an unbiased, objective observer who will bring you the real story. Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law. Here's a clip from her first hard-hitting news report on Trump's Facebook page. First up this week, let's talk about the president's salary. Again, the president has donated his salary. His first quarter salary went to the Parks Department. His second quarter salary has now been donated to the Department of Education. Here's the funny thing about Trump donating his salary to the Department of Education. So he's giving them about $100,000. Not a bad chunk of change. I, I wish someone would donate $100,000 to me. And don't forget, you, you can if you want. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Trump scorecard. Please, please join the others who support me bringing you the podcast every week. I, I really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash the Trump scorecard. But anyway, $100,000 sounds like a lot of money and a, a nice big donation, except it's not quite as big as the $9.2 billion in cuts his own budget proposed to that same department. In other words, it would take 92,000 donations of that size for him to make up for his own proposed cuts. He, he's not being generous. He's pulling the wool over your eyes. Remember, this is a guy making a ton of money off being president. The first thing he did after being elected was double the price of the initiation fee at Mar-a-Lago from $100,000 to $200,000. That means every time he admits a new member to his club, the markup for him being president is as much as he just donated to the Department of Ed. And that's just one way he's monetizing this presidency. I've talked before about how he's using his office to market his properties like his DC hotel, where foreign governments and lobbyists spend huge amounts of money that go into his pockets. And it turns out he's even tried to fleece the Secret Service. The people whose job it is to protect him, to literally get in the way of a bullet, set up a command headquarters at Trump Tower to protect him when he and his family are in New York. Only they fought over the conditions of the lease, including price. And after kicking them out of the floor below Trump's apartment down to the sidewalk level, the Trump organization is now telling them to find a space somewhere completely different. These people have pledged their lives to save yours, and you can't give them a break on the fucking rent? Why are you charging them at all? And how much were you charging them? And how does it compare to the salary you're donating? But hey, that's probably just more fake news I'm making up. If you want the real story, go to Laura Trump. Depending on your perspective, this was the week where the White House either completely lost its shit or finally started to turn things around. It started 
remember, podcast week started on Fridays, kids, with the long-anticipated firing of White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus. After Anthony Scaramucci came in, he took control of the White House operation, publicly accusing Priebus of leaking sensitive information to reporters in a profanity-laced tirade. We covered it last week. Then with the health care bill failing in Congress, there was really no way Priebus could stay around. So he was out, and Scaramucci was clearly the big man on campus. And until he was fired about five minutes later. Okay, maybe it was a couple days. But apparently that same tirade that helped force Priebus out the door embarrassed our pussy-grabbing president enough to get him kicked out of the White House while Priebus's chair was still warm. The man behind Scaramucci's ouster... That was Priebus's replacement, new White House Chief of Staff General John Kelly. And oh boy, was the D.C. Cognoscenti excited. They could not fall over themselves enough to express their delight at a grown-up finally being put in charge of the White House, and presumably the whole country. People were finally asking if this was the pivot they had been waiting for. One reporter even said Trump was now rattling off statistics in meetings, proving what a difference Kelly was already making. Folks, this is the 28th week of the Trump presidency. If you truly believe a pivot is coming after 18 months of campaigning and seven months of him in the White House, I do not know what to tell you, except please believe the evidence before your eyes. There's no pivot. But everyone was so excited about Kelly taking charge of the White House that virtually no one asked what I thought was the most important question. How did he do in his last job? I think this notion that he's going to bring discipline to the White House is ridiculous. Um, Only because under his leadership, ICE um, uh, was complete chaos. And a lot of that was largely um, intentional. Because what John Kelly did, along with um, Donald Trump's issue, series of executive orders and guidelines that Obama had set up, um, telling agents how to use the government's resources, and that was specifically to, you know, prioritize the arrest of people who actually did pose a threat to public safety, you know, like actual bad hombres. What, what John Kelly and Donald Trump did is throw that out the window. And uh, we've seen a 150% surge in the arrest of undocumented immigrants um, with no criminal record arrested compared to this time last year. Okay, so this is kind of a bait and switch. This segment isn't really about the chaos in the White House. And there's plenty. People are getting fired left and right from the National Security Council staff. No one knows how long anyone's going to last anymore. But what I really want to talk about this week is immigration. That's why I brought back Gabe Ortiz. If you are a truly devoted scorecard listener, that is, my mom, then you may remember him talking to me back in week four. He's changed jobs since then. He's now a staff writer for Daily Coast, where he covers immigration along with LGBT rights and other civil rights issues. And he pointed out that when Kelly started at the Department of Homeland Security, people were hopeful he would moderate Trump in that job as well. But that didn't happen. Uh, I think a lot of advocates were really hopeful that John Kelly was going to be the voice of reason when he was nominated, uh, because he actually seemed to understand, uh, especially what's driving some of the Central American crisis. We've seen a lot of women and children who have come to the border for asylum. And in the past, he showed understanding of that. 
But then once he was uh, confirmed as DHS secretary, um, it, it was a complete 180. Instead, undocumented immigrants have essentially had to suffer through a reign of terror over the last seven months. There's a real shift in how immigration and customs enforcement has treated immigrants under Kelly's watch. So in the past, when immigrants would um, be arrested by ICE, if they didn't have a criminal record and perhaps had many years in the U.S. and U.S. citizen children, what ICE would do is let these immigrants return to their homes, back to their children, under certain conditions. And those conditions were always regular check-ins, you know, sometimes every three months, sometimes every six months, sometimes once a year. And so long as immigrants could show that they were paying their taxes um, because they were issued work permits during these meetings um, and could show that they were staying out of trouble, they came and went from these meetings really without any trouble. Um, And this was during the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, What we're seeing now and what we saw under John Kelly's tenure is immigrants walking into these check-ins for the first time since Donald Trump was inaugurated and not leaving. Um, That means getting arrested or they've been slapped with an ankle bracelet and told to get their affairs in order and to buy a one-way ticket uh, for deportation, basically. Um, And remember, these are the immigrants who were actually trying to follow ICE's rules by coming into these meetings in the first place. So they're getting punished for just trying to do the right thing. So it's this kind of cruelty that that we've seen um, emerging from this administration. This creates a catch-22 for immigrants who know that they're damned if they do report to ICE as required and, and damned if they don't. And either way, they're being criminalized by the administration because if they don't come in, you know, they, they're going to say, well, see, there we go. You can't trust immigrants to try to follow the rules and, and try to abide by uh, what we ask them to do. And then if they do come in, um, they may never see their children uh, in the United States again. So it's a, it's a lose-lose for immigrants. And this is why the, the level of fear in the community is unprecedented. I mean, I, I wish I could say that I was exaggerating when I say how afraid everyone is, but that's the reality for people right now. And look, this attitude has real consequences for all of us. Undocumented immigrants are now scared to report violent crimes because they're worried ICE will pick them up and deport them. This has been another disturbing trend that that the police chiefs of L.A. and Austin have specifically addressed because they've noted huge um, drops in the reports of reported crimes and uh, rape, other kinds of assault um, that are committed against uh, immigrants and Latinos because so many of them are afraid that if they report to the police uh, that they were a victim of a crime and it, the police end up finding out that they are undocumented, that they'll somehow be turned into ICE. Um, these communities, a lot of them don't have uh, are, you know, a lot of them are sanctuary communities, so this means that police would not report any any sort of this immigration status, wouldn't ask to begin with, and then wouldn't report it to the authorities anyway. You know, they just want to make sure that they are are 
trying to make their community safer by looking for the perpetrators. But it's such a fearful time for immigrants that um, they, they aren't saying anything and they aren't reporting anything. And what it does, it's actually making communities less safe because if people are reporting less because they're afraid, then that means more people are still out there committing these kinds of assaults. So the Jeff Sessions especially has been saying that sanctuary cities uh, are havens for criminals, that um, it's a, you know, criminal's best friend. Uh, it's the policies and actions from this administration that are actually making cities and communities less safe. I asked Gabe if he had any advice for undocumented immigrants who are worried about the administration coming for them and their families. They're not alone in this fight because they have a community that's fighting along with them and they have allies. And I think I would really call on allies um, to use the privilege that they have. Those of us who are United States citizens uh, can put ourselves on the line and take a lot more risk than somebody say, who is an immigrant and wanted to protest, but then would fear getting arrested, for example. And I always really get a lot of hope from immigrant youth. Um, A lot of people know them as dreamers. Um, They've been fighting for themselves and their families for years now. And, you know, back in 2012, they were told that DACA wasn't possible by the Obama administration. And they ended up, through their power, and advocacy winning DACA. So for me, it's really comforting to see them on the front lines and fighting um, because they're not just fighting for themselves, they're they're fighting for their families. So uh, my message to to immigrants who are afraid is to look around you for the community and the allies and just know that you're not alone. But Kelly's ascension wasn't the only bad news for the immigrant community this week. The president also introduced a bill targeting legal immigration. He wants to cut it in half. And even though he's recently requested permission to hire immigrant housekeepers and servers at his own businesses, he wants to limit legal immigration to skilled workers who can already speak English. That bill is really just a continuation of uh, a lot of the anti-immigrant policies that Trump's promised from the very start. The bill, you might have seen uh, one of his advisors, Stephen Miller, who made quite a show of uh, in announcing it, who's quite anti-immigrant himself, but they're saying that this is being done to protect uh, blue-collar workers, but what it really is, it's just an attempt to limit all of the non-white immigration into the United States. Um, They know that, you know, by 2050, uh, there'll be more Spanish speakers in the United States than in any other country. So it's part of their efforts to really put a a stop to this kind of growth and to make America white, basically. And one of the really ugly things that we saw today is this pitting of um, immigrant versus uh, black American, immigrant versus uh, blue collar worker. They're really trying to create this, this war where everybody is uh, pitting themselves against each other. And I think a lot of it really is just a distraction to try to continue on um, these other attacks that they're doing on all sorts of other fronts. Gabe mentioned Stephen Miller there, and I want to play a clip from what he's talking about. This is from a fiery exchange he had with CNN reporter Jim Acosta. What you're proposing or what the president is proposing here does not sound like it's in keeping with American tradition when it comes to immigration. 
The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to uh, be a computer programmer. Uh, aren't you trying to change what it means to be an immigrant coming into this country if, if you're telling them uh, you have to speak English? Uh, can't people learn how to speak English when they get here? Well, first of all, right now, it's a requirement that to be naturalized, you had to speak English. So the notion that speaking English wouldn't be a part of our immigration systems would be actually very ahistorical. Secondly, I don't want to get off into a whole thing about history here, but the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of liberty enlightening the world. It's a symbol of American liberty lighting the world. The poem that you're referring to that was added later is not actually part of the original Statue of Liberty, but more fundamental. It was remarkable the way he dismissed the poem on the Statue of Liberty. It's an excellent piece, and it's much more than just those familiar lines. It's an explicit rejection of the principles in this bill. It specifically calls for people who are not the elite, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I wrote extensively about this for Rolling Stone this week, and there's a link on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. I hope you'll read it. But what it proves is Miller and, of course, Trump, have no idea what it really means to make America great. Immigrants have already been doing that since our founding. Remember last week when I talked about all the inappropriate politics and even more inappropriate yacht sex stories in Trump's speech to the Boy Scouts? The head of the Scouts actually put out a statement apologizing for the speech. But in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Trump talked about how well the speech was received and claimed the head of the Boy Scouts called him to tell him what a good job he did. The only problem? The Boy Scouts say the call never happened. So either Trump is lying or the Boy Scouts are. And frankly, I don't know who to believe. I guess we'll have to wait for Laura Trump to sort this story out. That's it for the 28th week with a man who has an ego the size of a T-Rex and a brain the size of a T-Rex's brain as our president. Thanks to Gabe Ortiz for coming back onto the podcast. And I meant what I said earlier about how you should head to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Trump scorecard and sign up to support the podcast. I'll love you forever. Another thing you can do is rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. It helps me find new listeners. Any thoughts you want to share? Find me on Twitter, at Jesse Burney. Don't forget to like the page on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. Email me at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. And for links to all the stories I've covered this week, visit the website at thetrumpscorecard.org. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here... At our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door.
The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.